rest of you, I want you to take out your Bibles and turn to the book of Haggai, one of the last of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. We're in week three of this series on the book of Haggai. I want to thank you, those of you that prayed for me this week. I was able to get away into the mountains of North Carolina and just have some extended time with the Lord. It was a great time. I was also able to do the full revision of uh, my book, Well Done. I've uh, made that applicable now for all believers. It was originally written as a sequel to Pastoring with Passion, and it was for pastors and leaders, but uh, I've revised it and added some chapters to where it's going to now be something that will be irrelevant for any believer. So pray for that to go to its full conclusion, and if God has it come through a publisher or whatever, but I've got some great work done on that this week. All right, I hope you bring your Bibles. By the way, it's really loud up here on me. It might be the monitors. Um, really hope you bring your paper Bibles. I know, it's, I know you can have them on your app, but it, there's something about holding your paper Bible in your lap, having it right there. You can write notes, you can highlight, you can circle things that are repeated. Because today, instead of our traditional you know, stand for the reading of God's Word, we're just going to literally go verse by verse through uh, 1 through 11. I'll make comments. And then I'm going to talk about the, the theology of the temple, and because and, that's super relevant for this chapter, uh, for this whole book. And then at the end, give you some practical uh, applications from this. Um, now, as we, as you ha- if you do have your Bible, uh, would you just hold it up? If you have a paper Bible, I'd like you just to hold it up. All right, cool. Love it, love it. More of you bring yours next week. Um, by the way, those of you watching online, so glad you're with us. You can uh, get the notes today on the app, or those of you in the room, you've got them on the back of your announcement flyer. So as you hold that Bible, as you look at that Bible, I want to remind you of what the Word says about itself. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man and woman of God would be adequately equipped for every good work. Hebrews 4 and 12 says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit. In Isaiah 55 it says the word will not return void. Paul told Timothy, preach the word. Folks, I'm telling you, churches are getting away from preaching the word today. They're getting into all kinds of feel-good stuff. It is so important that we stick to the Word of God. Amen? Our culture is headed in a direction that is not good. There are people that want to tickle your ears with things that just feel good. There is a trend of immorality that is unprecedented in our nation, and it is ever so important that we get back to the Word of God, that churches preach the Word of God, and that we stand on the Word of God and live the Word of God, hold to the Word of God, because the truth will set you free. Now today, have you ever been in a job situation where a bunch of people were goofing off, and all of a sudden the boss shows up and they kind of perk up, and he says, hey folks, get to work. Quit goofing off, it's time to get to work. You ever been in a situation like that? I sure have. Well, today, the prophet Haggai appears to the Israelites, and he says, get to work. No more excuses, no more goofing off, no more putting off what you know you need to do. Get to work in rebuilding the temple. We're going to learn today that this, this temple has a lot of significance way beyond a physical building in the Old Testament. So, Father, we pray now in the name of Jesus. 
thank you for your word. Thank you that we stand on it. We stand under it. We stand upon it. And, and, and God, would you anoint it now? Thank you, Lord. Every word, every phrase is anointed and inspired by your spirit. This book that we hold is unlike any other in all the universe. And so we thank you that it has power to transform our lives. So use it now in that way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, verse 1. In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest priest. In this verse, we see the role of prophet, priest, and king. The prophet was the one who gave a timely word to bring correction to the people of God when needed. The priest was like our modern-day pastor. They were the ones that ministered in the temple. They're the ones that brought the sacrifice, ministered to God and for God. And then the king was the governmental ruler. Here you have a king and a governor. So it's important to note the distinction biblically between the role of a prophet, priest, and a king. I covered this in my uh, pre-election devotion, so if you want more on that, but it's very important that you understand the distinction. And by the way, I will just say this as a little side note. Be sure you vote on January 5th. It's an important runoff in this state. Vote biblical values and convictions. And I, I don't say this is the only thing you should consider, but beloved, I am convinced when we vote, we need to consider seriously the plight of the unborn. 61 million babies have been killed since Roe v. Wade in this country. The blood of that cries out in our nation. God forgive us, please. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. <laughs> that was not only his, that's the army of the Lord. It's primarily angels. It's also the Trinity. The, the Trinity in and of himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is a host of sorts. He's an army that moves. <laughs> There's also the angelic army. The Lord of hosts refers to God and his army. The angelic army, and I believe when you are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, you become a part of the army of God. So you and I are a part of this host now under the new covenant. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. We learned in the last two weeks that the history here is that 50,000 Jews had returned from the Babylonian captivity under the leadership of Cyrus. This book was written in 520 B.C. When they returned to Jerusalem, they began immediately to rebuild the temple. They had built the foundation. They had rebuilt the altar so that they could have sacrifices in order for the forgiveness of their sins. That is what had happened, but then 16 years had gone by, and if you want to read more about this, the book of Ezra gives you a lot of history about why they stopped working on the temple. They were experiencing opposition, they were believing lies, and they were getting selfish and pursuing just their own houses, their own interests at the expense of the temple of God. For 16 years they had abandoned this project, and now Haggai in 520 B.C. is saying the time has come for you to get back to work. Their excuse was this. They say, the people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time, so here you would circle time here and, and take it back to the, ver, 
to verse 3, or verse 2, where the word time is used, very significant. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house of God lies in ruins? Some believe there's a little sarcasm here. Like the prophet under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is kind of saying, oh, oh, I get it. You say there's not time to do this, and yet you have time to do this. Can't you see the contradiction? <laughs> so, so it's a play on words here, and Haggai is like, wait, 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 you need to think this through. You say the time has not yet come to do the work of God, and yet you've got plenty of time to work on your own houses. Ooh, don't we do the same thing? I don't have time to spend with God. I don't have time to read my Bible and pray. I don't have time to go to church and get involved in ministry. But, but, I, but you have plenty of time to look at social media, watch TV, go to the sports event, go shopping, do all this stuff. Oh, 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 wait, wait, wait. Do you not see the contradiction? <laughs> so it was this subtle, almost sarcastic way that God, through the prophet Haggai, was kind of saying, and, and then, so then what does he say next? Now consider your ways. Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. In other words, stop long enough to think through the incongruency here. <laughs> Back up and just think this through. You've got time to do this, but you don't have time to do this. The issue is never a, a matter of time. It's an issue of priority. There's always time to do the will of God. The issue is never we don't have time. The issue is how we spend our time. It's an issue of priority. So because the people of God have been disobedient, because the people of God have been selfish, because the people of God had offered excuse after excuse, which we talked about last week, now he's going to show them that certain things have been happening in the physical realm because God is shaking them up. The theme of this series on Haggai, the shaking. God will sometimes shake our lives to get our attention, to wake us out of our spiritual lukewarmness, whether it's sin that we need to become aware of or whether it's just lukewarmness and passivity and, and, and whatnot, that many times out of love, listen, out of love, God will shake your life and mine. Verse 6. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have a fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag of holes. In other words, I have sovereignly and powerfully allowed some difficult things to come into your life. God is saying, I have sovereignly and powerfully allowed you to not reach fulfillment in your endeavors as a way of shaking you into spiritual repentance. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, another repetition. Consider your ways. So again, I want you to consider your ways. I want you to stop long enough to think through and see that this lack of fulfillment and lack of fruit and lack of you getting what you think this is going to get you, all this time you're spending building your own house and building your own kingdom and, and, and building your own wealth, it's not giving you the fulfillment that you thought it would. And guess why it's not? Because I'm not going to allow it to. <laughs> and so because of that, I want you to stop long enough to see this from my perspective. Consider your ways. Again, one of the most repeated words in this whole book. Verse 8. 
go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. So now he's saying, get to work. That's where our title comes from, get to work. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. All right, so this is a great time to push pause. I watched a movie recently on Margaret Thatcher, documentary. No, it's a movie on Margaret Thatcher, it's not a documentary. And it was fascinating because it, it, would, it, it, would, it, it, picked, it started with her in her latter years having Alzheimer's. And then it would take you back to her previous life and her upbringing and how she reached a, an amazing position of leadership in Great Britain. And, and so it kind of, you were here, but then you went back. And so it's a, it's a time right now to pause. And I want to give you now what I'm going to call a theology of the temple. Because this whole book is about rebuilding the temple. Here he's told, they are told to go up and, and finish the work they started. And so I believe it is incredibly significant that we have a theology of the temple. And I wonder if any of you have ever heard or been taught about the theology of the temple. And I'm going to give you almost a systematic theology. It's going to go fast, so you're going to need to really pay attention of how significant the temple was then and now. And how the New Testament, the New Covenant, brings it out of the physical into the spiritual. So here we go. Get ready. First of all, the temple was a meeting place. It was the place where God met with his people. It started with the tabernacle, then it became Solomon's temple, and it was built with ornate beauty. I mean, incredible detail. Why? Because God wanted a relationship with people. He wanted a physical place to meet with his people, and it was literally called the meeting place. Secondly, or before that, now, if God wants to meet with people, listen, he wants to meet with people, he wants to have a relationship, what is it that keeps people from a relationship with God? Sin. And so this is one of my favorite ways to share the gospel with people. You can use the three circles. I like the bridge diagram where you have God on one side, man on the other, and, and the division is called sin. Sin is anything we do that violates God's holy standards. It's in thought, word, and deed. Things we don't do that we should do, things we do do that we shouldn't do. It is called sin. It separates us from God. It keeps us from a relationship with God. And there's nothing, listen, nothing you and I can do to erase that sin barrier. No amount of religion, no amount of works, no amount of goodness or benevolence or giving money or being charitable or trying hard. None of that can erase your sin. Only one thing can. It's called the blood atonement. In the Old Testament, they had to offer the sacrifice of an animal on that altar. Now, they had built the altar in the foundation up to this point. Keep that in mind. This is going to be very relevant for later. But, but that, that, the, the sacrifice of an animal was required to erase their sin. It was called the Day of Atonement. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. They would put a rope around him because if he died, because the presence of God was so strong, anybody else that would go in to get him would die, so they would pull him out with a rope. Only that could suffice to, to erase their sin was blood atonement, and it happened in the temple in the Holy of Holies. Thirdly, once they were forgiven and they had that relationship, 
the, the temple was a place of what I call glory encounter. The glory of God came to that temple so strong at times that it literally says the priest could not even stand to minister. The presence, the heaviness, it's literally the word glory in the, in the Hebrew means heavy. It's this weight, but it's a beautiful weight. It's a beautiful heaviness. It's the glory of God. It's the manifest presence of God. It's the power of God, and it would come to the temple, particularly the Ark of the Covenant. This is why when David and others went to battle, they always had the Ark of the Covenant with them. And when they brought the Ark of the Covenant, they won the battle. When they didn't bring the Ark of the Covenant, they lost the battle. The Ark of the Covenant was the physical representation of the glory and the power and the presence of Almighty God. So that occurred in the temple. Then we come, fourthly, to the fact that the temple was the place of corporate gatherings. This is significant. Because it shows that God is not only about our relationship with him as individuals, but that we do it in community. He's always had a community of people. Plural, the Israelites, the body of Christ, the church, his host, the Lord of hosts, his army, his people, his hands, his feet. We are the body of Christ under the new covenant. And so the temple was a physical place where they could gather for corporate worship and growth in God, much like we're doing right here. Now we move to the New Testament. Listen closely. Something very significant was said by Jesus in John chapter 2, verse 19. He said, destroy this what? Temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. He referred to the temple of his body. Hear Jesus blew everybody's mind, took the whole theology of the temple to a whole nother level, basically saying, I am the temple. This is the ultimate temple, right here in front of you, my body, my life, and it's going to be killed, it's going to be crucified, and in three days I'm going to rise from the dead. So Jesus said that his body, his life, was the ultimate temple. Now look at the bridge diagram. Because of him coming, he's the bridge. He's the sacrifice, his blood shed, his blood atonement for all of our sins once and for all. We are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. So he is the blood atonement. He's the bridge. He's the only way we can be forgiven and reconciled to a holy God. Because when he died on that cross, he not only bore your sin and mine, he absorbed the wrath of God for you and me. He's the once and for all sacrifice. Again, Jesus said, John 2 and 19, destroy this temple and in three days it'll rise again. This broadens one's understanding of temple theology, his blood atonement, which number seven brings about a relationship, fellowship, salvation in Jesus. Beloved, the temple is all about a relationship. It's all about intimacy with God. It is about the fellowship we can have with God through Jesus Christ. Number eight, once you get saved, once you receive God in your life, once you repent of your sins, put your faith and trust in Christ alone, the Bible says you become the temple of God. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Christian, you're the temple. Because God lives in you. You literally house God. You house God. It says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Because he resides in you. What did we learn earlier? 
What did we learn earlier? That the temple was the place where God would meet with his people and manifest his presence and manifest his glory. So now that you are saved, you have the Holy Spirit in you, you are a temple of God. Oh, this is good. So you and I, if you're saved, are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Number nine, it says in Hebrews 10, through Jesus, we can come boldly into the holy of holies. That's a reference to the temple. So it's using the Old Testament temple, the holy of holies, that place of deep intimacy, that place where only the high priest could go once a year to offer the sacrifice, that place where God's presence was, that place where the Ark of the Covenant was. It says, guess what? You and I spiritually can enter the holy of holies every single day boldly because of the blood of Jesus. It doesn't say you come boldly because you've been good enough. It doesn't say come boldly because you went to church every Sunday. It doesn't say boldly because you gave a bunch of your income. It doesn't say come boldly because of anything you do. You and I come boldly because of what he did. And I'll tell you what, beloved, when you start putting your focus on who God is and what he's done for you, your confidence begins to rise. It's not a confidence in self. It's not a believe in self. It's not, a, oh, I can do anything I put my mind to. No, it's a confidence in God who lives in you. There's a, there's a world of difference in those two. Had the privilege this week of talking to a young athlete, and he was wrestling with this whole issue of confidence. You know, because they're told you got to be confident. you got to go out on that field and be confident, be confident. Yeah, there's a place for that. And so it was, it was, it was awesome to talk to him about how your confidence, young man, comes from who God is, what Jesus has done for you, and who you are in Christ. It's not I can, I can do all things through Christ. No, it's I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See the difference? It's where you put the emphasis on the syllable. That's where, exactly where it is. You didn't get that, did you? All right, number 10. Because of the, another aspect of temple theology is given in, in Psalms 100, verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. So this is a principle about how to have deep, intimate fellowship with God. The way to get into the Holy of Holies in terms of your relationship with God is thanks and praise. You, you begin your prayer time with thanksgiving and praise. That's another aspect of temple theology. Then finally, number 11, in the new heaven and the new earth. I actually want you to turn to this. This was, this was a new, I know I had read it before, but I, I read the entire book of Revelation this week in my time with God. Boy, that was rich. Literally, it took one day and just read all of Revelation. And in 2122, I saw no temple in the city. This is the new heaven and the new earth. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Mm. So now the temple in the new Jerusalem is Jesus. We will not need a physical temple in any way because Jesus is the temple. You won't need light or sun in the new heaven and new earth because the glory of God will enlighten the new heaven and the new earth. Man, this is good stuff. And so the final point here is that Jesus is the ultimate temple. So, beloved, here's the deal. Here's the, here's the bottom line, central point of temple theology. It's all about relationship with God, intimacy with God, closeness with God through Jesus, and that we do it together in community. It's intimacy with the Lord. It's your relationship with Jesus and that we do it together in community. Now, let's go back to Haggai. 
because they had started to rebuild the temple by laying the foundation and having the altar for sacrifices. Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize, but I do believe there's some. this is what I think is important there. It's like a person who is saved but not growing. Get this. They've laid the foundation. They've, they've built the altar so they had the sacrifice for their sins, but they didn't do anything else. So I'm thinking... Today, that's like a person who gets saved, they receive Christ, they are genuinely born again, they've laid that foundation, but then what do they do? They go and start doing their own thing, they get lukewarm, they kind of put God on the shelf, they begin to just pursue their own stuff, and and Haggai is saying, no, get to work on your relationship with God. So that's the whole angle I'm taking today. Get to work on your relationship with God. You say you're stretching it, you're over-spiritualizing. No, I'm not. I just gave you the temple theology to show you that ultimately building the temple was about building a relationship with God. And under the new covenant, we have that through Jesus Christ, his sacrifice for our sins. So under that umbrella now, okay, get to work on growing. In the book of Peter, it says, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. 1 John chapter 2 says, grow from a child to a young man to a father spiritually first corinthians chapter 3 verse 2 says you're you're drinking milk and you've been drinking milk for years it's time to grow up it's time to start eating meat hello and so on and on the bible talks about growing in second corinthians 3 verse 18 it says as we behold the glory of god we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next by his spirit We are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We are to be growing into maturity. We are going to be advancing in our walk with God. This week, I was reading in 1 Corinthians 2, and it talks about the deep things of God. I posted about a 10-minute thing on Facebook. If you want to watch that, about going deeper with God, what it means, the deeper things of the Lord. So now, back to Haggai 1, verse 8. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. Again, not trying to over-spiritualize, but I think it's significant. Go up. In order to grow in your relationship with God, you've got to go up. You've got to get beyond where you are. You've got to leave just earthly things. Hello. And you've got to do some work. Work is required. Effort is required. Philippians 2 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You do it in the power of the Spirit. You do it in the community of the saints. But you have to put forth effort. You don't grow in your relationship with God by just wanting to grow. You have to get to work that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. So when you begin to put forth an effort, when you go to the hill, when you leave the earthly things, when you start working in the power of the Spirit on your relationship with God, guess what? He responds. He says that I may take pleasure in it. He loves to find a person who begins to seek him. And when they do, he responds. The Bible says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Jeremiah 29 says, you will seek him and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You've got to put forth an effort. You and I have to do something, but when we do, God responds and meets us. He begins to reveal himself to you. He begins to increase your hunger for him. When you start reading the word, when you start praying, when you start listening to godly sermons, when you go to worship and and your heart wants to grow, you put forth that effort. Man, he kicks in with his energy and his presence and his power. Verse 9. You look for much, 
Behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew. The earth has withheld its produce. God affecting the physical realm to awaken our spiritual walk with him. God intervening in the physical life to intersect our relationship with him. This is the shaking. And I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills, and the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labor. Again, God causing the physical to have problems to get their attention. It's an old book called Don't Waste Your Sorrows, Paul Bilheimer. And he says, God will bring sorrow into your life when you need to be shaken. And he wants to do a new and a deeper work. Sometimes sorrow will come, pain will come, shaking will come, drought will come, lack of fulfillment will come. And it's God's way of getting our attention. Well, you say, that doesn't, that doesn't jive with the, with the God that I understand. Well, then you may not understand God rightly. <laughs> You may need your understanding of God broadened because you may have a limited view of his nature. He will bring pain. He will bring hardship. He will bring trouble to our lives, especially when he wants to do a new and a deeper work. I believe this points to an attribute of God called his jealousy. I write about that in one of the chapters of my book, God Does What? The Jealous God. If you heard that sermon, you remember it. But let me remind you of what it means that God is jealous. I was married in 1985. Isn't that a great wedding picture? I knew Dee Dee would. She's just squirming right there. She's like, no, you brought that. I did not ask her permission. Probably should have. Anyway, here's a more recent picture. All right, so we'll move along. There we are. There we are. All right. We've been married 35 years. I love her with all my heart. The Bible tells us that God is the groom and we are the bride, right? Talk about pointing to intimacy and depth of relationship with God. That picture is amazing. That God calls us his bride. Now, if, if Didi began to give her affections toward another man, if I did not love her, I would not really care about that, would I? But because I love her, and I value our intimate, exclusive relationship, I would be jealous, and if I really loved her, I should do something about it. Not just sit back and let it play out. I would probably kill the guy and be in jail, but if I was, in the, if I was filled with the Holy Spirit, I would handle it, maybe more godly, and take other action to bring about, to get rid of him and to see her heart change. And the Bible says, he's our groom, I'm his bride. As our groom, Jesus, when we give our affections and allegiance to things that belong to him, 
when we are busy building our own house instead of getting to work on our relationship with God because he is lovingly, sovereignly, powerfully jealous, he gets to work. His hands, his heart, his feet go into action to get rid of those things that we have given our lives to that we shouldn't and to draw us back into greater closeness with him because he's a jealous God. Folks, I hope that helps you understand a little bit more of the heart of God. And if you want all the verses about God being jealous, just get this baby right here. I'll give you a discount. And, and read the chapter on the jealous God. Verse after verse after verse after verse, Old Testament and New, about God being a jealous God. I'm so glad he's jealous. I'm so glad he cares enough about us to do something when we get wayward. If he didn't, then it would show that he didn't care. So listen, watching online, those in the room, things are happening in your life right now. This is by divine appointment that you're hearing this. And it's God's way, perhaps, of shaking you out of your spiritual stupor and lukewarmness and carnality and sin and flesh to get you back to where you belong with him because he loves you. Because he created you for intimacy with him. We don't have time to go from verse 12 on. But just a quick little nugget here in verse 12 to 14. The people obeyed. You know, we ought to just celebrate that for a minute. Just give the Israelites a hand. <laughs> I mean, you know. I mean, there's so many times they don't obey, and they drift, and, and it says, we will just read this one, and this is where we'll pick up in two weeks, because next week we're having a special Christmas service, but it says in verse 12, all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and they went to work. Hallelujah. They obeyed God. We just sit back and say, that's good, and I want to be like them. And here's the cool thing about God told this to a couple this week who has some issues they need to deal with. I said, you know, the cool thing about the gospel is that God is always about the now and the future. If we repent, if we admit we've done wrong, if we bring our sin to the cross, guess what? He is so eager and willing to forgive us, cleanse us of all unrighteousness, and say, guess what? Today is the first day of the rest of your life. Hallelujah. Paul said, I forget what lies behind. And I reach forward to what lies ahead. Don't live in the past. Don't let the devil bring up your past and shame you and condemn you. Beloved, bring it to the cross and move on. Move forward. And God doesn't here whip them and, and say, you know what? I'm going to make you suffer for these 16 years. I'm going to really bring it on you. I'm going to make you suffer even more because you haven't paid enough, you know? Or, or, or have you spent some years in purgatory? By the way. Purgatory is an absolutely unbiblical doctrine. You know what purgatory says? Purgatory says that the cross wasn't enough. Aha! It's an offense to the cross. That you need to pay off your sins a little bit in purgatory. That's a bunch of, mm, don't let me sin, Lord. But the cross was enough. The cross was enough. And the beauty of the gospel is if you repent and you turn, he forgives and it's move forward. It's move forward. All right. So we'll deal with that in two weeks. And then what really is cool is in verse 14, he stirs up the spirit. 
Oh, we're going to have a great time in two weeks. Don't miss it. We'll talk about the Holy Spirit. What it means for the Holy Spirit to be stirred up within us. And it's because they repented. They obeyed. They feared the Lord. We'll talk about the fear of the Lord, what that means. And then because of that, God is pleased. His glory shows up. His Holy Spirit gets stirred up. And man, it's revival. You and I can have revival anytime we choose to repent and do it His way. So let me conclude by giving you the following practical suggestions on building your relationship with God. Number one, be sure you are saved. Make sure you've laid that foundation. Make sure you've had that altar experience. Receiving Christ is the first step. Listen, Jesus said in Revelation 3 and 20, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and what? Dine with him. Fellowship with him. It's this beautiful picture. Jesus is outside the life. He's outside the door. And, and, and when we open the door, we receive him. We say, God, come into my life. Forgive my sins. He comes in. And then the next thing it says, he says he'll sit down at your dining room table and he'll have fellowship with you. That's so good, isn't it? It's, it goes right back to temple theology. It's all about relationship. All about relationship. So make sure you're saved. Number two, spend time with God in the word and prayer. Notice again in verse 2 and verse 4, the word time was used. So this is important. This aspect of time. They were spending time building their house instead of building the house of the Lord. They were spending time on selfish pursuits instead of their relationship with God. We spend time on what? Entertainment, social media, television, blah, 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 just busy with our lives, and we neglect time with God. There is no single discipline more important in building your relationship with God, in my opinion, than having time with the Lord in the Word and prayer every day. No replacement for that. If I fail to spend time with God on a regular basis in the Word and prayer, my relationship with God will drift. I'll do exactly what it says in Hebrews. I will drift. My heart will gradually drift. Because we are prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, O Lord, and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Number three, be in fellowship with others. Hebrews chapter 10, forsake not the assembly of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day draw near. One of the reasons that COVID has had such a detrimental impact on so many people, because they're isolated, they're removed from fellowship, and this isn't to shame anybody who's not comfortable coming back yet because of COVID, but I'm telling you, even if you're not comfortable coming back on Sundays, you need to be in fellowship with other believers. You need to be connected with other believers in some way, Zoom, calling, having a small group outside, wherever you're comfortable. But we are never called to just be alone with God and not connected with his body. The temple theology, it was fellowship with God, intimacy with God, in community. And so it's so important that we be in fellowship with others. People that love us enough to tell us the truth. People that love us enough to say, you know, brother, I'm concerned about this in your life. People to hold us accountable and pray for us and encourage us and motivate us through their walk with God. Number four, repent of any and all sin. In other words, keep the temple clean. The temple is not to be defiled. The, the Israelites did that here. They're repenting of their selfishness. They got back to work. And it's important that you understand biblically what, what repentance is. Repentance is a good thing, by the way. It gets a bad rap. You know, it, it gets a bad rap and that people think, repent, 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 you know, like that. But it, repentance just means you turn 
from that which was not good and you turn toward that which is good. You see, too many people have had a, a half view of, of repentance. They think it's only giving up what you really want to do and, and i got to be miserable now. No, it's, it's turning away from that which displeased God in order to pursue God. And what's beautiful about it is what you get here is far better than what you were getting here. You think this is better. And that's the lie of sin. It'll promise one thing and deliver another. And so you think this is where it's at, but you're left wanting, you're left unfulfilled, the drought comes, God shakes you, so that you repent, turn from this to here where your heart is really fulfilled in God. Because this is what you were created for. What do you need to repent of? What is it in your life right now that you know displeases God? Where are you sinning? Where are you violating His standard? You need to repent that you might pursue God more fully. Now, this number five is similar, but it's a little different. Remove things that hinder your walk with God. See, this is not just repenting from sin, but it might be removing things that aren't necessarily sin, but they're not the best. You see? It'd be less time on social media. Looking at social media may not be sin in and of itself, but it may be keeping you from time with God. So here you remove things that are hindering you from pursuing the best. It's giving up the good to have the best. It's a principle in the Old Testament in Isaiah. It's called, or Jeremiah, circumcise your heart. Now when they circumcise a little boy, they don't cut away bad skin. They cut away good skin as a health measure. Sometimes we have to cut away things in our heart that are good. They're not bad in themselves to get the best. And that's where you let the Holy Spirit search your heart. What's God showing you today that needs to be altered so that you can build your relationship with God stronger? In other words, in their case, it wasn't bad to build their own houses. He never said you shouldn't have your own house. But they were giving all their stuff here and none here, see? So he, he didn't say, oh, burn your houses down <laughs> and don't, live, uh, don't have your own house. He just says, you need to, you've been given way too much time here, <laughs> and, and you need to give more time here. That was a circumcision of sorts. Number six, use your gifts in serving and ministering. Because we grow more when we serve. God gives a beautiful picture of this in the Holy Land. Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. Both have water flowing into it, but only the Sea of Galilee has water flowing out. Therefore, it's alive and there's fish and so forth. The Dead Sea has water flowing in, but no water flowing out. Therefore, it's dead. And we become spiritually dead if all we are doing is receiving but not giving out through serving, through using our gifts, through blessing others, through financial investment and giving stewardship of time talents and treasures and finally number seven you do not do any of this in your own strength you rely on the power of the holy spirit and i can't wait two weeks from today to preach on the holy spirit because we'll cover verses 12 to 15 all right i think we have a little time for q a it's been a while so uh shannon two mics here make sure they're turned on you and one other person Take those around. Alex, can you help, please?
Come on up and grab a mic. You and Shannon, if you have a question, we don't have a text number today, but if you have a question, raise your hand. Um, covered a lot of ground. Hit this from a lot of different angles. I, I'm sure it's brought up something that you would have a question about. Either the context of Haggai, temple theology, growth in God, some of these ingredients for growth. If you have a question, raise your hand. Those of you watching online, since we don't have a text question today, my email is davidholt08 at gmail.com. And I'll answer that later. Somebody here? Somebody over here? Get them ready for the next one. Charmaine, do you have one? Okay. Just a little sharing in terms of four, point number four and five, where it talks about repent and hinder. An experience I have is that, like, if I want to give up something, rather than do it cold turkey, like, okay, I need to stop do this and do this, or I need to remove this and add this. What I find is when I do it, including God in a conversation and dialogue, and I literally tell him, well, you know, what is really causing me to don't do this or to do this? It might be like, say for example, I'll just give an example. Um, one could be like, you think you're not telling all of the truth because your boss is not very helpful in receiving your explanation or your husband not really approved or, or you know warm enough in sharing so like telling God the whole situation and what I find is that he will help you repent and with the repentance and the hinder and um, get you to the right place Good. and he also will help the person who is causing the blockage or the barrier or the situation to change. Good. So it makes it, you don't just stop do this and do this because what you may find is that you go back doing it in the next month or the next week. Well, what I like about what you're saying is you're inviting God in the process. Yes. yes. Holy Spirit, show me, yes. you know, what's the cause of this? Right. Uh, reveal to me maybe why I'm doing these things. Right, right. That's good. Thank you. Yeah. Good. Who else? Morning, Pastor Dave. Um, this is Zerubbabel, the, the governor. Was he um, an Israelite or was he like appointed by the Babylonians? Seemed like he would have known better than, than to let the, the, the temple go to, you know, disrepair like that. I don't know. Good question. <laughs> Let's look into that together. I'll, I'll, I'll do All that. Right. The, 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 the name Zerubbabel must mean something, but it don't have a enough I-E-L or... In other or words, why, nah. as the governor of Judah, why had he let this go on? Yeah, how, how did he so not long? know better? Yep. Well, I, know, I do know this, that in Ezra, when Cyrus gave the order yeah. to, 
to to start to to allow this. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting because he he also released funds for it to be done. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So he, no he separation of church and state back then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he actually released government money. Yeah, he did. to rebuild the temple. But that's a good question. Email me that this week as a reminder. Uh, need to do some more homework on that. Can I speak into that, Pastor? Yeah. I've been working through Chronicles, uh, sir, and in Chronicles, Zerubbabel is mentioned as a son. Uh, he's descended from the Davidic line, and we know that Zerubbabel is actually a descendant of Jesus. So, yeah, he was an Israelite in some form or fashion. Thank you. And, and that's very significant um, in the very last verse of Haggai. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. That was a prophecy about Jesus. And it's exactly what Alex is saying, that that signet ring, where I've chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts, was many scholars believe that was a prophecy that, Je- that the Messiah would come through the Davidic line. Now, there's others that more clearly say that, like the one about Christmas and so forth that we always talk about. But that is another one that points exactly to what Alex is saying. So, yeah, the first part of your question, sorry. Yes, he was an Israelite. He was a Jew. The second part is the one I didn't really know the answer to, was that why didn't he take some action? Good, good, good. Thank you, Alex. Can I say this real quick? Yeah. Uh, Genealogies are really important to read. I promise there's a lot of really good things in them. You should read them. And And there's reason it's given in the Christmas story. Because it's all pointing to how Jesus came from the Davidic line. And you see a lot of really messed up sinners (laughs) that God still used in the fulfillment of those prophecies. So perfection's not required. Can I hear an amen? I'm not excusing sin. I'm just saying God can work through broken, flawed vessels like you and me. He's so good. Amen. Amen. Anybody else? Worship team, come on up. Maybe one more? Yes. Husband. I like that. Say that again. Say that on the microphone. Hey, husband. (laughs) Can you do a quick overview of the prophet, priest, and king and the roles? Just real quick. Okay. So I I did this in the devotional on the election because I said we're not electing a pastor-in-chief. We're electing a commander-in-chief. And that's not excusing anybody's character because that's important. But, but, the, but the role of the king was to protect the nation. Okay, so, so you can do that and, and have flawed character. I'm not going to go any further. Uh, <laughs> protect the nation. Okay, protect it from enemies abroad and within. Don't we say that when a person takes the oath? Okay, so that's the king. In this case, you have king and governor. So they are, they are doing what Romans 13 talks about. God ordained the government to protect and also punish evil, reward good. The role of the priest was like a pastor today. They, had, they ministered in the temple. They ministered on behalf of God, offering sacrifices, and ministered to the people, helping them grow in God. So they were like the spiritual shepherd. So the, the parallel today of the king is our president. The parallel for the priest today is a pastor, elder, church leader. And then you had the prophets. The prophet were those that God raised up when there was a need for a timely word. And the role of the prophet today 
1 Corinthians 14, we're all to earnestly desire to prophesy, and that's giving timely, helpful words for people or groups so that they can advance in God. Is that thorough enough? All right. Let's, let's look at that final list again. Where do you need to give attention? Which, which one of these seven applies to you the most? Pick one. Just pick one. Holy Spirit, which one is most for me right now? And then make a decision what you need to do. Build, strengthen your relationship with God. God, we thank you for your word today. We've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> and uh, Lord, that's because we don't want to be shallow Christians. We don't want to be a church that's a mile long and an inch deep. We want milk and meat, truth and grace. So thank you. And I pray that now I claim that your word will not return void will produce growth in those in the room, those online. It's the grace to apply what you're most speaking to us today. We would be a growing people, a growing church, always going deeper, loving you more fully. Never knowledge that puffs up, but love that edifies. And a people who are mature and balanced, have that good inflow and outflow. So I pray that over everybody today. I pray growth, I pray passion, I pray desire, I pray repentance, I pray refreshment, I pray Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit come, fill us afresh, stir up in us what we need, because apart from you Jesus we can do nothing, amen and amen. Alright, let's stand together. Uh, prayer team, you go ahead and take your spots please. And we need to take our offering. He forgot it earlier. Well, usually we don't have the worship leader administer it. So as we're singing this response song, we'll pass the offering baskets or we'll take them by you. You don't touch them. Or you can put them in the boxes as you leave today. And again, there's a number of ways to virtually give. So Lord, we give now in this offering. Use it for your glory. In Jesus' name. If you need prayer, come and get it from somebody on the prayer team.